I feel rather like the Queen of Sheba this morning. I'd heard of Cairns Road, but the half has not been told. Thank you for your gracious and warm welcome. Thank you, Lord, that the sun is shining. Thank you that this is the first day of the week set aside for rest and worship, for hearing the word of God, for having fellowship with each other, for a time of prayer, a time of fun, a time of song, indeed a time in which we can ask that the Lord will bless us, which he's already started to do. If you'd like me just to say a word about myself, my wife and I are members at Fishponds Baptist Church. We've been worshipping there since about 1989. When we first came to Bristol, we worshipped at Alma Road at Clifton, Bethesda, among brethren. And we worshipped there in part because it was one of the churches that George Muller had founded. And during the years that we've been in Bristol, I've had the privilege of being associated with the George Muller Foundation. And I cherish the memory and example of George Muller. I have a wife, three children, five grandchildren, and a retirement pension. I came in Polo this morning in good time in the hope of finding the church and being able to park nearby. In the words of the scripture, I pitched my tent over against the tabernacle. Now let's read from um, 1 Kings chapter 17. If I had um, glasses uh, that would help me to read, they'd have to be not the normal bifocals, but the other way around. Uh, without my glasses, I can't see you. With my glasses, I can't see what I'm reading. But I hope you'll bear with me. Thank you. Elijah fed by ravens. Now Elijah the Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastwards, and hide in the ravine of Kerith, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the ravine of Kerith, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, 
A widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. I'd like to use that narrative from 1 Kings as an introduction to our text. Um, If we don't refer to the text until near the end of the address. Please don't be unduly surprised. But when we do, I hope that you will see pointers to it from what we have read in 1 Kings. Who was this man, Elijah? What do we know about him? What was he like? What is his place in the Word of God? We read in the New Testament that Elijah was a man just like us. The authorized, or King James Version, has it, he was a man of like passions as we are. I think that means that he went through the same experiences that we go through. He felt the heat. He felt the cold. He needed to be fed and watered and find shelter. He needed to be loved. He was a man of flesh and blood, just like us. He was also, says James in that same passage, chapter 5, a man of prayer. He prayed to God. He said that it wouldn't rain for some time. And then he prayed to God that it would rain again in God's time. He was a man of prayer a man who walked with God, a man who knew what it was for God to answer his prayer, perhaps because he prayed in the Spirit. He seemed to sense what God's will was. He wanted to attune himself to the will of God, and so he prayed. He lived during the reign of Ahab, who was one of the wickedest kings ever to sit on the throne of Israel, And that wickedness was compounded by the fact that King Ahab married a woman called Jezebel who was proverbial for her wickedness, her godlessness, 
her idolatry, her persecution of the people of God. Jezebel, even Tom Jones thinks Jezebel, who is proverbial for her wickedness. And the chapter previous to the one that we've read says that there had been no such wickedness under any king at any time in the history of Israel since there were kings in that land. This was a man whose name means, do you know what the name Elijah means? Jehovah is my God. I believe that El and Yah are both words, I don't know Hebrew, but I believe that they're both words that mean God. Jehovah, the Lord, is my God. And F.B. Meyer suggests that it's also possible to translate uh, the word Elijah as the God whom I serve. And that is the hallmark of Elijah's life, that he served God, he walked with God, he prayed to God, he obeyed God, and God used him as a prophet in his purposes. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, God had said that the wickedness of his people uh, in the wilderness at that time was such that he would shut the heavens so that it would not rain and the ground would yield no produce and you will soon perish. Now, we don't normally think of rain or lack of rain as the judgment of God. But I think at this particular stage, perhaps God was judging his people. Elijah, as he heard the message from God, said, it will not rain. And it didn't rain. And it didn't rain. And it didn't rain. And it didn't rain. I've been quite a keen um, vegetable gardener for many years. And last, in the spring of last year was the driest I'd known in 40 years of gardening here in Bristol. And the crops did not prosper. So I prayed that this time it would rain. <laughs> Please don't blame me for, for what followed. Elijah declared that for some years it would not rain. James, in his book, said that it was three and a half years that it didn't rain. And in fact, the Lord himself is quoted in Luke's Gospels also saying that for three and a half years, it didn't rain. It wouldn't have been much fun, would it, uh, growing an allotment or being a farmer for three and a half years when it didn't rain. We are entirely dependent, aren't we, upon rain and upon the Lord for the seasons and his provision. And Ahab took this statement by the, by the prophet of God as a rebuke. He took it as something said against himself. He took it, I suppose, as insubordination, as dissidence. It will not rain. Perhaps Elijah said, because of the wickedness that prevails in high places, it will not rain. And of course, it's well known, isn't it, that if you don't like the message, there's a temptation to shoot the messenger. 
And that is what Ahab wanted to do. He turned against Elijah in a big way. And so God said to Elijah, go and hide in the ravine called Keris. And I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. You know, I find that very surprising. Because although I, I'm afraid I wouldn't know, yes, I would know at the Tower of London, I'd know the ravens, wouldn't I? There are the Tower of London ravens. And I've been trying to rack my brains to think what the legend is about those ravens. Perhaps somebody can tell me afterwards. Was it that the monarchy would fall if there were no longer ravens at the Tower of London? I seem to remember that might have been it, having been taken there. I I came from London as a child um, quite often. The, the, The reason I find this surprising is that I thought that the word ravenous had something to do with ravens. And ravenous means consuming lots of food. It doesn't mean sharing, it means consuming. And so I find it very surprising that the ravens of all people, uh, sorry, of all creatures, (laughs) should um, supply bread and meat every day, and that Elijah would drink from the brook. Fortunately, although it hadn't rained for a time, and it wouldn't rain for a long time, that brook still had water, and this was probably in an unpolluted age. The water was good to drink, so God would supply the need of Elijah from the brook and from the ravens. I've almost forgotten that the uh, heading of this part of my talk was supposed to be God's provision. God provided through the ravens and the brook for Elijah's need to drink and to eat and to live when he was in hiding at the place of God's appointment. Elijah obeyed the Lord and he went and he stayed there and the ravens brought him bread and meat morning and evening. Do forgive this radical uh, thought that also entered into my mind. It might have been tempting for him perhaps to eat one of the ravens. But no, and, and I think there was a very practical reason for that. The more ravens he'd eaten, the less ravens there would have been to bring him the bread and the meat. But quite apart from that, in both the books of Leviticus, chapter 11, and Deuteronomy 14, uh, the children of Israel are forbidden to eat ravens. Not only did Jews not eat pork, but the ancient Jews in Israel did not eat ravens either. And there was Elijah, fed, watered, and safe. The other thing I find surprising here is this. God said, I have ordered the ravens to feed you. Now that would suggest that God is a sovereign God. That God is in charge of nature. That the creator and the sustainer of the universe 
directs what will happen to provide for his own. We don't actually know how long Elijah was there at Keris. But the time came when the brook dried up. And the Lord said, it's time to move on. And go to a place called Zarephath of Sidon. Another surprise to me is this, that the brook Keris is east of the Jordan and therefore not part of Canaan. And that Zarephath is near Zidon, modern Lebanon, and that is also outside the boundary of the land of promise. But God made it very clear, take yourself to Zarephath. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Apparently the word Zarephath means a smelting furnace. So Elijah went from the cool of the brook and the ravine to the heat of a smelting furnace. And the journey from one to the other was apparently about a hundred miles. And Elijah must have felt puzzled that God should call him to go so far from one extreme of cool to another extreme of heat. But he discerned that that was the will of God and he trusted and he obeyed and as soon as God spoke, he started on his way. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. The Lord Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4 says, there were plenty of widows in Israel, but the one widow whom God chose to supply Elijah was from Sidon, outside of Israel. And Sidon, of course, was the place from which Jezebel had originated. Another surprise, a surprising source, a surprising hand. But under the sovereign goodness of God, Elijah was to be supplied by a widow. I don't know how long it would have taken to cover a hundred miles, especially if uh, he was, as he was, a fugitive. It's some time since there was a, a series on television, wasn't it, called The Fugitive? Was this a one-armed man who went from one place in America to another and always managed just to escape uh, being overtaken by, by the law? Yes, well, so did, uh, I'm not suggesting that Elijah only had one arm, but um, he, he, he made it. Maybe there were a few scrapes and adventures on the way. How long it took him, I don't know. But there he arrives at uh, Zarephath, and when he comes there, he finds, he sees a widow. Well, how would he know that she was a widow? I don't know, but... Um, Apparently she was a widow. And she was gathering a few sticks together. And he said, could you please give me a little to drink? 
I should have thought that after a hundred miles of thirsty travel, he might have asked her for a lot to drink, but no. Could you give me a little to drink? Well, I, I've always been very circumspect at approaching um, people I don't know, especially perhaps widows. Could you give me a little to drink? And she started to go to find something for him to drink. Oh, and by the way, could you give me a little crust of bread to eat as well as a little water to drink? And she said, well, I'm sorry, but um, I'm gone, I'm come here to gather these sticks together to make a little fire and to cook a last meal for my son and me. And after that, we shall be at the end of our resources and we shall die. All I've got is a jar of flour and a jug of oil. And Elijah said to this widow, he said, you know, that jar of flour will not be used up. That jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. Now we've read, haven't we? We've already said that God had said to Elijah, I have commanded a widow in Zarephath to feed you and look after you. What was it, I wonder, that persuaded the widow to change her mind? Well, I suppose that um, in one way, she felt there was something about this man that made her think that perhaps what he said was true. Perhaps she, she thought, as lawyers say, on the balance of probabilities, that she might as well see if what he said was right and if her resources would stretch and last. There was no rain in prospect. She didn't know how long that would be. But perhaps she thought that it was more practical to go along with what this unusual man had said. Do you remember in the Gospels, uh, Jesus asked his disciples, whom do men say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Now apparently, there was something about this man who had appeared out of nowhere that had the spirit of God upon him. There was something of godly authority in what he said. There was something of godly promise in what he said. And she felt drawn under the prompting of God to do what he said. And so she went home and she made a little cake and she gave him that little cake and she gave him that glass or something of water and his needs were met 
and wonderful to relate as the Bible tells us the jar did not fail and the oil did not run out and both Elijah and the widow and her son were supplied day by day under the faithful good hand of a loving and providential God. That's what happened. There was provision for his need. The second thing I thought was that um, this talks to us of God's protection. We've already said that Elijah was a fugitive. He was running away from an angry king whose wife Jezebel had arranged for the murder and martyrdom of many of the prophets of God. And Elijah had no reason to think that he would be treated any differently if he fell into the hands of that wicked queen and that wicked king. He was a wanted man and a hunted man. And in the next chapter, chapter 18, God says, go and present yourself to Ahab. And then said God, I will send rain on the land. Now that, of course, meant that if Elijah was to obey what God said, he was effectively, as it were, putting his head into the lion's mouth. He was going to a place of certain death. And yet that's what God told him to do. God had somehow protected him in Keris, where he'd hidden in the ravine, and somehow protected him in the house where the lady, the widow, dwelt in Zarephath. And now he would protect him even if he went to the place of apparent certain death. The other day, I heard an address at a seminar, or rather I sort of half heard it. I got other things on my mind, I'm afraid, that, 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 that morning. But I had got a pencil in my hand and a blank sheet of paper, and I wrote down one or two things that uh, the man said. And I didn't think much about it afterwards, except that when I got home, he'd quoted from a certain scripture. And I thought, well, I'll read that. And God blessed me hugely through what I read in the scripture even if I hadn't paid much attention to what the man said. Now, if I can put that principle into practice, I'm going to stop going on myself and read a few verses of Scripture. And if you forget everything that I've said, it just might be that these words about God's protection will be a help and blessing to you, especially if you feel 
either now or at some time in the future, in need of the protection of our Lord. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's what I will say of the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. And then at the end of that, Psalm 91, verse 14, Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him. For he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. I will deliver him, says the Lord. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Something of the protection of, of the Lord. I wonder if perhaps some of us might have read the life of Brother Yun, who is a leader of the underground church in China, who went through most terrible persecution and tribulation and was placed in prison and miraculously delivered from that prison in a way which is very reminiscent of the way in which Peter was also released from prison in the New Testament. It was extraordinary. He was under the closest guard. He was one of the most wanted men in China. His guards would have had no compunction but to shoot him dead. And yet somehow he walked out of that prison just as Peter walked out of the prison in the early chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. But he was one of the most wanted men in China, was Brother Yun. And the Lord seemed to be saying that the time had come for him to leave China and share with Christians in other parts of the world what God was doing in China and how God had led and protected him. He had a problem. He didn't have a passport. And to get out of China, apparently, you need a passport. And somebody gave him a passport with a picture of a man which looked nothing like him. And yet, the Lord said, it's all right. I'm going to take you out of China to freedom. 
because I've got purposes for you. Uh, He said, but the Lord said, but be sure that whatever you do, you don't say anything. The reason for that was that apparently every human voice is different from every other human voice and that the authorities in China had, oh, I'm getting lost now in technology, I'm always lost in technology. They had some device whereby if he spoke, they would know that it was Brother Yun. So he goes to the airport with this passport bearing a photograph of somebody who looks nothing like him. And he says nothing. And he goes up to the official. You know, I I, I expect most of us have travelled through airports from time to time and we have to take our passport about 17 times and show different people and they thought, yes, yes, yes. And somehow, the official, although he looked puzzled when he saw the passport that looked nothing like Brother Yun, didn't actually query it and let him straight through. It's not unknown, in fact, for God to protect his own by causing other people to be blind. God can bring a blindness. God can open gates of steel. God can protect his own in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. Now I know that uh, by this time on a Sunday morning, the preacher before you is competing against automatic ovens. She who must be obeyed, I'm not, my name is not Rumpole, but she who must be obeyed told me what time she expects me home. And when she who must be obeyed speaks, of course, Mr. Rumpole or his counterpart listens very carefully to what she says and hopes to arrive at the time she specifies. That, of course, is good news for you because it does mean that I'm coming to the end of this talk. And our text, I promised you that the text would come at the end. Um, My God, writes Paul, shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God shall supply all your needs. The needs of provision, the needs of protection, whatever other needs there may be, God will supply them. It was in reliance upon that that George Muller started to build those orphanages on a hill that could clearly be seen from everywhere around. He chose the most conspicuous place on which to start building. He didn't think that God would fail. He thought that in answer to prayer, God would supply 
and God did supply. And George Muller's primary motive was not to look after orphans, though that was high on his list of priorities. His priority of concern was that people should realize that God still answers prayer and that God will move the hearts of his people to ensure that his purposes are served and that his work is carried out. And the emphasis on this verse in Philippians chapter 4 is really not all our needs, but all Christ's riches. It isn't that God just meets our needs. It's that there are vast resources in Christ that God will use to meet your need and my need. George Muller proved in the 19th century that God hasn't changed. He still answers prayer. And I say that with confidence in the 21st century. May I end with an anecdote which, well, see what you make of it. When I was in practice, I had a small office in Downend, well known for W.G. Grace, the cricketer. Um, Grace is a charming sound. Some people would think of him, of course. Um, and um, some people used occasionally to offer me money, cash, for my services rather than pay by check. And I, I, no, I, no, I can't get into that. And so what I did was to open a building society account across the road at the Bristol and West, the good old days at Bristol and West, um, in the name of a man who had at one time worked for the George Muller Foundation, but was now living by faith, with no visible means of support, about God's work somewhere else in the well-known county of Avon. And if somebody wanted to pay me in cash, I said, well, actually, I've got a passbook here. Uh, it's in the name of Mr. So-and-so, who is um, doing the work of God. Would you like to put the money into that account? At other times, uh, with Christians who I sort of knew and they knew me, I'd say, well, instead of paying me, would you like to decide on a certain figure that you think my services are worth and put into the passbook in the Bristol and West across the road? And I used to give them the passbook, over the road they'd go, and they'd put the money in. And every now and again, I'd send the passbook to the servant of God and he would take out everything in the account except for say five pounds and then he'd send the passport back and we'd start again. One Thursday afternoon one Thursday afternoon I seemed to have a feeling or to hear a voice I can't exactly describe it put the passport in the post. I'd had no contact with the man for three months, six months, nine months. It, it varied. There was about 140 pounds, I think, in, in the passport. And so that's what I did. I put the passport in the post. 
And I really didn't think much more about it. Until the following Tuesday, I had a letter from the man which said this. We were absolutely without resources. We had no money in the house. We didn't know what we were going to eat that day. And we'd forgotten all about that passbook. And it came through our letterbox. And we opened the thing and realized it was the passbook. And what nearly brought tears to my eyes was that he said, because what they did was to beetle down to a Bristol and West office near, nearby and, and take the money out. What nearly brought tears to my eyes was this. He said, the bread that we ate and the milk that we drank, paid for by the proceeds of that passbook, tasted the sweeter because God had answered our prayers in the most unexpected way and provided for our needs. Perhaps you and I are called upon to be God's ravens even in the 21st century. And not only to look to him for the meeting of our needs, but to see if he would use us to meet the needs of others. Thank you for your patient listening.